Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Kira Jane Buxton about her book, Hollow Kingdom, which is out now from Grand Central Publishing. And you can find a complete transcript of this episode, as well as a list of all the books mentioned today by following the link in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You know, if there was ever such a thing as love at first sight with a book, I think this might be it. (laughs) Definitely. And we talk about this later, but the cover's beautiful. The description is bizarre, to put it mildly. If you've seen any of the promotional photos on Instagram, they're packed with Cheetos, which makes a lot of sense if you've read the book. (laughs) It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, and I really love Liberty Hardy's uh, discussion of this book on All the Books podcast, where she talks about how it's blurbed as the secret life of pets meets The Walking Dead and how it's basically like the epitome of the perfect Liberty Hardy book. So if you love quirky books about animals, this is your sweet spot. And you definitely should go to Kira's website and look at her author photo um, if you're a pet lover, because it'll just make your ear probably. <laughs> it is It is adorable. So a little bit about the author. Kira Jane Buxton's writing has appeared in the New York Times, NewYorker.com, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Huffington Post, and more, as she calls the tropical utopia of Seattle home and spends her time with her three cats, a dog, two crows, a charm of hummingbirds, and a husband. I love how she has her priorities. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So here is our conversation with Kira about the Hollow Kingdom. Well, welcome, Kira, to the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this tremendously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were so excited to discover your book at Book Expo this year. And as soon as I saw the cover, I was like, I have to know what that book is. And then as soon as I read the description, I was like, I have to get my hands on a copy of this. (laughs) Um, So we're excited to finally have read it and get to talk to you about it. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, you know, I'm very fortunate that the cover is so beautiful. Um, Jared Taylor did the cover and he's actually, he lived in New York from Seattle and he just recently moved back here. So he just really gets that whole Seattle sort of the the skyline on the cover and the, you know, the, the markings on the crow are rain falling onto the skyline, which is so perfect. And he really got the whole... Yeah, isn't it crazy? Like, it's one of those things that it's hard to pick up on until you really, like, stare at it, like maybe I have, and maybe only I have. (laughs) But yeah, it's an eye-catching one. Yeah. Definitely. I remember, I think it was our first day, and we're like, when is this arc dropping? Because the cover was so captivating. And then we took it back to our hotel room, and I think we took them in our carry-ons, because we're like, we can't can't mail this back to ourselves. Like, we need this immediately. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. It's such a gorgeous cover. So yes, uh, many congratulations to your designer. I'm just, I feel like you could frame it and then put it on your wall. Yes. I mean, it is. It's it's that pretty. It's gorgeous. And he only did only one other iteration. Um, the first one he sent it was very dark. There was a lot of sort of blood splatter everywhere. And it was very, very red. And Crow was sort of very ominous looking. It looked a bit serial killer-ish to me. <laughs> Which uh, Only if you're a Cheeto, yes, really. Yes, only if you're a Cheeto. But I... Um, uh, thankfully, you know, he, we sort of said, well, you know, it was still beautiful. It just didn't quite fit with some of the more sort of 
you know, lyrical elements of the book or the sort of the, the nature writing that I think it, there's a little of in the book. And so he went away and came back with this cover and just completely nailed it. Amazing. Yeah. I've seen so many like f- fan art pieces and there was that gorgeous cake you just posted recently. <laughs> so before we get ahead of ourselves, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Hollow Kingdom, uh, could you describe it for them? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of a challenge, but I'll go, I'll try. (laughs) Um, I've been describing it as a humorous literary dystopian novel with some horror elements, um, and a lot of nature writing in it. It's really, it's the story of ST, who is this sort of domesticated snarky, um, American crow who's been raised by a human, Uh, an electrician named Big Jim who lives in the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle. And ST sort of doesn't really uh, associate with being a crow. He really sort of firmly believes in his little heart that he's human and he loves our species. And he's sort of been raised on this steady diet of TV, you know, a lot of pop culture, like uh, he's uh, Bravo TV and he loves National Geographic and he loves the Discovery Channel. And of course, he loves the greatest food that uh, man has invented, the Cheeto. (laughs) And so ST uh, lives in this home with Big Jim, the human and his uh, and Big Jim's bloodhound, Dennis. And he's quite happy living this sort of very anthropocentric existence. And then one day something happens to Big Jim. His eyeball falls out of his head. And that's when ST sort of thinks like, oh, something's a little off here. And he goes out to try and find a cure for Big Jim. He gets him some beer and various uh, medications that he thinks might work. And then when he realizes the problem is is not something he can fix and it's a little bit more widespread, uh, ST and Dennis have to sort of go out into the natural world, uh, which is a world that ST's never believed in. Um, to try and find a cure and to ultimately try and save humanity. So it's a little unusual. (laughs) Oh, but it's like the best kind of unusual, which made us wonder, like, where did the inspiration for this book come from? It's so funny because I, you know, I thought about it a lot recently. And I I think if somebody had told me four years ago, I, I wrote it three years ago. And if somebody told me four years ago that I'd be writing you know, this book, this crazy wild book from the perspective of a crow who tries to save the world, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed it. But when I look back, I think, well, there's so many things in my life and things I've been inspired by that have sort of culminated in this. I, you know, I grew up abroad. I grew up in Asia and the Middle East. And I I grew up, my, my parents were big about big animal lovers and big into rescuing. We always rescued things wherever we went and people would sort of hand us animals and go, here, deal with this. And when we lived in Dubai, we used to get camels that used to come into the yard. And, you know, I was very enamored by the camels and I would, you know, they'd come into the yard and I'd be like, these are my camels, you know, and my, my mom, my poor long suffering mom was like, no, these are not our camels. And once a one-eyed goat that came into our uh, yard also in Dubai. And I was like, look at him. He's perfect. This is my goat. And she's like, no, it's not your goat. And no, he's not perfect. And so there's always been the animal thing. And also, you know, I was lucky I went to some really good schools that um, sort of instilled a conservation ethic sort of in me very early on. And I used to do these like projects about, you know, tourism in the Thousand Islands, you know, the impact of it environmentally. Or um, I would do 
great big projects on sea turtles or wolves. And so ultimately all of that, my first job was at a zoo. I was a volunteer and I used to run around, have these great animal encounters. And then when we moved to Seattle, you know, many, many years later, my husband and I, we moved to Seattle because of the trees. Um, we, we saw them and fell in love with them. And it was this sort of how do we live around these beautiful evergreens, the Douglas firs and the Western red cedars, and just absolutely love these trees. And we moved here, and then I started to have crow encounters. I'd always been fascinated by them. I had this one encounter where I was walking my dog. This poor crow was sort of lying in the street, and his his wing was sort of almost backwards. It was really, really broken. And up in the trees all around were probably around 60 crows, 60 of its family members. And they were all just, I mean, it was deafening. They were screaming. And I thought, oh no, I've I've got to do something. So I got a little box and I went up to this crow and I thought, oh no, (laughs) I'm going to get dive bombed. Like this is going to be my 100% my tippy hedron moment, you know, like that it's going to be very Hitchcockian. Instead of dive bombing me, they sort of all went silent and watched me. And I I looked at this little crow and this little crow looked at me and I just, I knew the crow understood that I was there to help. And so I did manage to get the crow to a wildlife rehabilitation center. And very sadly, the crow didn't make it, which is terrible. But after that, my relationship with the, the crows really changed. I felt I could, everywhere I went, they were sort of following me and I started chatting to them and I started reading all about them. So I was sort of fascinated by how intelligent they are and sort of being able to experience it and see empirical evidence of that. And then I moved to a different part of town and ended up befriending two wild crows who have basically become like family members to me. Um, They visit me every day and they leave me little gifts and it's very, very special. So all of those things, I think, kind of led to the, you know, writing of this crazy wild book. (laughs) That's the best story ever. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) I'm I'm not even kidding. Like, that's amazing. If I could rewrite it, if I could rewrite that story, I would have it so that the crow lived, the little crow. I think about it, you know? Yeah, I think about that crow. But my buddies are—they're a lot of fun. There's—I I do spend a lot of time with them. They're very different. A lot of people ask me, like, how can you tell the difference between two crows? And my two are a mated pair. And it did take me a while to figure out who was male and female. I got it wrong uh, initially, and it—it it, it wasn't until the mating, their first uh, nesting season, that I knew who was female because she was busy with the nest, and then the male dart would sort of sheepishly come by and be like, "She's busy. What are you doing?" <laughs> sort of thing. But the and, and then their personalities are so different. Um, Dart, the male, is sort of this very beautiful, regal crow, and he's a little bit more aloof and absolutely stunning. He looks like a fighter jet from the side, just gorgeous, beautiful feathers. And then T is like, she's the female, and I, I joke a lot that she's like me. She's she's kind of clumsy. Um, she has a little bit of a wonky wing that, that must have broken at some point and healed a little funny. And she's just funny. She's full of sass. She drools when she eats. She's got a real sense of humor. She loves to hide up on the roof and then, like, jump out at me. That's a big thing she loves. Or, you know, show off things she's stolen from various places. It's a lot of fun. I have, I have way too much fun with those two. Yeah. So... As we've talked about a little bit, this is definitely a quirky book. You know, it's narrated by animals. It's from this crow's point of view. It's, as you mentioned, it covers like lots of different genres and different topics. Um, So what was the publishing journey like? Like how did Hollow Kingdom end up finding a home 
at Grand Central Publishing. Yeah, it's, you know, honestly, it's the whole process with this book has been this tremendous joy. It really has. Um, but it's not my first novel. And I always really think it's so important to say that this is my first published novel, but it's not the first novel I've written. Um, there are three novels and a memoir that I have written before this that didn't find um, a home. And I think for good reason, like there were some very strange things going on, especially with the first book, <laughs> which was a lot of fun and will be unsurprising to you that there's a, there's a rhino in it and there's a tiger and there's actually a bloodhound in it. So apparently I'm a little obsessed with bloodhounds, but I had, I had come very close to landing an agent with, um, with one of the novels. And I sort of went back and forth with this really wonderful agent for, I, I think it was maybe close to over a period of maybe close to two years, um, where it was sort of like me tweaking and, and bringing it back and changing it. And I hired some great editors, worked with them. But ultimately what happened was I, I actually over-edited it and I couldn't see it anymore. And it was so heartbreaking to have this, you know, book that I'd spend a lot of time on and put a lot of love into and, and other people had helped me with it. And it, it just, I, I would open up the document to look at it and I, could, I couldn't see it. It was just like, a nebulous sort of blur of letters. So I fell into a little bit of a funk over that. I felt very sorry for myself. I sort of, you know, did a lot of rolling around on the floor and drinking wine out of a salad bowl. And uh, ultimately, my, my, my poor long-suffering hus husband said, you know, why don't you go and write the thing about the crows? So it took me a while to figure out that premise. And once I had I was kind of off to the races once I realized like, okay, well, what if, what if a crow is telling our story about, you know, our species? What if a crow is talking about our extinction? And once I had that piece, I really wrote that first chapter really very, very quickly and ended up writing the whole book chapter by chapter and reading each chapter to my husband. And the whole thing took a little under, I think it's about, it was about three and a half or just under four months. So I really, in a way, binge wrote this novel joyously, happy, happy frenzy. And I gave it, I, I sort of read a sample chapter to my writing group. One of my dear, dear writer friends said to me, you know, I think, I think you really have something here and you should share it with an editor. So I, um, I gave it to a local author whose name is Waverly Fitzgerald. She's fabulous. And she, I was very nervous to give it to her. She said, pitch it to me. So I pitched it and she said, wow, that's weird. And I said, yes, it is weird. Um, <laughs> and she said, well, send me a few chapters. And then there was kind of a silence while I waited, you know, and she emailed me back. She said, well, I think we need to meet in person. And I was so nervous. I thought, oh no, I mean, I'm going to be in the, somehow I'm going to be in the doghouse for writing this, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be like extricated from the Seattle writing community. And I saw her and she said, you know, I think this is so unusual. And she said, I think one of two things is going to happen. Either one, no one's going to touch it because it's so weird. Um, or two, this might be a big deal. And she said, I think you need to send it to agents and know sooner rather than later. So you don't go through that big heartbreaking process that you just did with the other book. So I started to query and, um, and then I started to get this amazing response where you know, agents loved it and either felt like they weren't quite sure how to sell it, but would cheer me on or, you know, ultimately uh, really wanted it. And so I ended up flying out to New York to meet um, some really wonderful agents. And 
Um, I was so lucky as to get offered representation from Bill Clegg at the Clegg Agency. And then that whole process of him selling it to Grand Central, and they've just been the most amazing to work with. So um, I just feel like the luckiest, really the luckiest person on earth. (laughs) And we'll be back with more of this episode of Reading Woman after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Health Tea Book Crate, a bi-monthly book and tea subscription box that aims to guide subscribers to better understand the importance of wellness and nourishment for the mind and body. Every other month, they send out a carefully curated box that consistently features three components. The first one is a book, a novel, a signed first edition of a novel by a woman, and some past novels have included The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames and The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. There's also a loose leaf tea that ties into the featured story as well as our chosen theme for the box. They work with small artisans to inspire you to experience new brands and different types of tea. The last element is self-care products and bookish goodies that are made by small artisans. They work with brands that are prominently women-owned and promote wholesome ingredients and send positive messages to their subscribers. And they also work only with brands that they know they can be proud to collaborate with. And the great thing about Health Tea Book Crate is that they ship internationally, so no matter where you live, you can have this amazing crate shipped straight to your door. They also have three different subscription options, a single box where you can just try them out with one box, a six month subscription or a one year subscription. And you can use the promo code readingwomen to get 10% off any of these subscription options. Their September book is themed dreams and ships out on September 16th. So be sure to sign up before that ships out. And all you have to do is use the promo code readingwomen to get 10% off any subscription options. That's readingwomen to get 10% off your Health Tea Book Crate subscription. And thanks so much to Health Tea Book Crate for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. I think about what your writer friend said to you, like, this is either going to be really weird and no one will touch it or it will be huge. And I feel like that's something special about this book. It does have that kind of quirky nature to it. And I feel like you have a blurb that says it's like the secret life of pets meets the walking dead. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Which is perfection. (laughs) Yeah. That was Karen Joy Fowler who said that the, the inimitable Karen Joy Fowler, who's a genius. Um, and I was so happy that she loved it. Um, but she came up with that. And another favorite description that it was an editor who was reading it, who said to me on the phone, he said, uh, it's like Kipling if he were really, really high. <laughs> and somebody else said Animal Farm on Acid. So there's definitely some kind of a <laughs> It's definitely unusual. But, but there are also, I think, you know, sort of more of a, you know, some of the chapters, because it's not just narrated by ST. There's also these sort of interstitial chapters that are narrated by other animals around the world to give a sort of global view of what's happening, you know, in this sort of 
near dystopian future. And that was because, you know, partly I wanted to get into the minds of as many animals as possible, which I'm sure you can relate to as animal lovers. But also because I, you know, it, it gave me some room to sort of experiment with fiction as well, experiment. And, and some of it's, you know, sort of almost poetry. Nobody told me that I couldn't have a funny literary novel with horror elements and other elements. Nobody said that I couldn't. And I had, I think because I had gone through the the rejection already, it was like, well, and I'd also, this also came on the heels of, I was, I was act, acting in LA for 10 years and really nothing, nothing came of that. I was, <laughs> I call myself a failed actress. So I had, you know, I'd racked up a lot of rejection over a long period of time and sort of got to the point where it was like, well, I don't have anything to lose. Why don't I just really enjoy myself and really enjoy the writing process and explore the things I want to, you know? Yeah. And I definitely feel like you like harness that love for animals. And, you know, since it's narrated by an animal, narrated by a crow named ST, there aren't, there are many books, especially adult books narrated by animals. I think I could think of so many books for children narrated by animals, but I feel like, Oftentimes, adult fiction thinks that, oh, that's too childish or whatever. It doesn't work. But with your book, I feel like it really works. And as someone who loved books by like Walter Farley, you know, writing about, you know, this amazing horse or the story of a grizzly or a snapping turtle moving from Canada, you know, to the Mississippi Delta. Like, I, I love those stories narrated and from the perspective of animals. So since you were writing for adults, uh, were there any particular challenges that you found while writing from ST's perspective and from the perspective of all these other animals? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, I agree. I feel the same way you do. I, I feel like that's something I missed from my childhood is, you know, being able to explore, you know, the experience of another. And I think, I think in storytelling, it used to be more that way. I think, you know, it's our, our storytelling has changed. So it's mostly just this very, you know, human experience. And I feel like I'll read a book and it'll, if I'm reading a murder mystery, and there's a dog in the scene. I always, I want to know. I, I know the dog knows what happened and I want to know, you know. And I just feel that once I finally found a way to write about crows and, and very directly from the perspective of one, I think the main challenge was in not going too overboard with real world animal facts because I had a tremendous time researching for the novel you know it's grounded in a lot of real animal behavior and I think I got so excited about a lot of it it was very tempting not to say how many teeth an animal had because it was so cool or you know just to not go too overboard with it ST was not difficult to write from this from his perspective because I think you know in spending a lot of time with my crows my crow T my friend crow she really did inspire a lot of his sort of antics, antics and behaviors, things I got to see up close. But I did find challenges with some of the other characters, in particular the polar bear. There's, there's a chapter narrated by a polar bear. And I think when I came, I knew I wanted to do a polar bear, but, you know, they are the, really the, they're, the polar bear is the poster child for climate change. And I, I didn't want it to be glib or trite or heavy-handed. I wanted it to really feel 
authentic to what a polar bear might experience. And, you know, I didn't want it to be didactic or depressing or too, you know, too heavy. So that was tricky. And then there were some that were just real surprises to me. I had I had actually been trying to voice a hummingbird when the Angus, this Highland cow, exploded onto the page, a very narcissistic Highland cow. So that, you know, there, there were surprises along the way too. But mostly, I, I would say that mostly it was just a pure joy to explore with absolute freedom um, and less of a challenge. Well, and I think all the different animal voices, and you know, you mentioned a cow and a polar bear, and there's dogs and cats and sparrows, and I don't know, there's all kinds of animals in this book. And you mentioned climate change too, and that's one of the things about this book that really struck me was like, you know, I think we see a lot of like post-apocalyptic or similar kind of books that talk about it like from the human perspective but seeing it from the animal perspective really does change it because of the relationship to the earth and you know how connected they are to the earth which I thought was a really interesting way to approach it and a very thought-provoking way to approach it. Were there any guidelines you had when you thought about like how the animals experience the world or how their voices express themselves or what, what did that look like? No guidelines at all zero. (laughs) Mostly me. You know, honestly, I think a lot of it was about reverence, you know, and wanting to get it right and not, and wanting it to feel as authentically like each character as I had, as I have been so lucky as to experience in my lifetime. You know, I, I mentioned that my first job was at a zoo. I was 12 and I was a volunteer and I had this little job where I was supposed to pick out they give me these buckets of mealworms and I had to pick out the beetles that had, you know, gone through this metamorphosis and the worms were to feed the babies in the nursery, all the baby animals. Well, I, I did for about two days, I was really good and I did the mealworm job, but then I'm, you know, I was like 12. So I just decided like, no, I'm going to go adventure. And so I did. And I, I sort of met these wonderful keepers and befriended them and, you know, showed them that I could be responsible. And so I had these really incredible animal encounters. And so, I mean, I I hand fed a Sumatran rhino. We used to hand feed the hippos, uh, which was incredible. Um, You know, you'd lob whole watermelon and and corn husks into their mouths and then they crush them. It's just brilliant. I held snakes and I held a cobra once, all of these experiences. So I've been around them. And I think to be around animals and to really experience them and to be raised like I was with this idea that they're not lesser beings, you know, we, we share the planet with them. And I think we forget that sometimes. I think it's easy to forget because we we're caught up in this sort of very human, you know, anthropocentric world we've created, you know, we're, we're online, we're, we're as connected in a cyber way, you know, we we're more connected than we've ever been. And I think in some ways we're more disconnected from nature than we've ever been. And I think to be around animals kind of breaks that spell and reminds us that we're really part of this wonderful, wonderful world of nature. You know, we're not, it's not nature and us. We are, we are part of it. So when I had these experiences and, you know, I basically, my whole life has just been finding excuses to be around animals. <laughs> I've always felt like I could experience each one having a personality and having emotional complexity. I mean, you know, you you shared with me that you have cats and a 
and a corgi. And I mean, goodness, I, I'm sure you could tell me a million things about their personalities and what they're like <laughs> and, you know, what, what human, you know, that they're most like, you know, or who would play them in a movie or their, you know, particular moods. And my, my dog certainly has uh, the most feelings of any being I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> Very emotionally complex animal. So I just, I, I just sometimes I feel like that's um, something that gets overlooked. You know, when we start caring and we see and experience the complexity of an animal, animal, then I think we can start caring more about them and be moved to, you know, emotionally moved to to help them. I really appreciate what you're talking about because you you meet animals and you know. Growing up in rural Appalachia, it was very much like you were part of this ecosystem and you had removed like the top dog, as it were, like you were at the top of the food chain. And so you had to be respectful of the rest of the food chain as well and learning like deer tracks and animal tracks and your your impact on the environment was very much part of that. So Autumn and I were, were talking about this book and a lot about how, uh, you know, the end message, which I won't talk about a, a too much because of spoilers, and how it seemed to us that, you know, the story is a lot about those kind of relationships, animal-animal relationships, animal-human relationships, human-earth relationships. You know, everyone has something to give and everyone has something to learn. Um, so what advice do you think that ST would give to us? about how to better relate uh, to the, the world around us and, and be really good citizens of the earth that we're on right now. You know, ST is a work in progress, so I wonder if you would get distracted from that <laughs> message and, you know, veer off on something else. But <laughs> I think ultimately, you know, perhaps not in the beginning of the novel, but later in the novel, I think ST would talk about certainly exactly what you were just saying, the interconnectedness of life and all of life and respecting uh, what's around us and realizing too that one of the, even I think once I read a, uh, there was a good op-ed in the New York Times. It was about, you know, feeling this panic about what's happening with the environment and, you know, the IPCC report, you know, where we stand to lose a million species. And this, and, and I remember when that report came out, I was really paralyzed. I felt very depressed and, you know, and the facts are so important, but they're not uh, motivating necessarily. I think of that, you remember that Sarah McLaughlin uh, ASPCA, I think it is, um, the commercial. It's very, I mean, it's become kind of, you know, very iconic, and it's, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to look at. It's hard to watch. So I, in writing this, I was trying to find ways with some levity to shine a light on the issues, you know, with using humor um, to handle the idea of an apocalypse, just to make us think, you know, from the safety of where we are now, looking through fiction to imagine it and think about like what we could be moved to do to help. And I think in terms of relating to the environment around us, you know, this op-ed was talking about the fact that she was saying that she's doing good things for the, the birds in her yard. You know, she's, she's planted a pollinator yard and she's doing she this. And all of this counts is that that is what basically this, you know, op-ed is talking about, that even a small act is a step in the right direction. I found that to be true for myself. And I've started spending a lot of time with the birds in my yard. Um, and I encourage other people to do that. I have hummingbirds that I now hand feed, and I have a couple of juncos. I have Earl the squirrel who comes by, um, Stellar's jays and the crows. And I'm watching these behaviors, and 
you know, when we start thinking of them as, as family and caring about them and learning their behaviors, that sort of can be extended outward, you know, whereas it's so hard to relate to the plight of a polar bear, when we start caring about the environment and doing good things for the environment around us, that can sort of end up being, you know, extended out, I think. But I think it can start at home. And that might be something ST would be a proponent of is is being kind to the animals around and planting a pollinator yard, something I cannot recommend highly enough. I now have several types of bees that come to the yard and uh, and the hummingbirds come and it's been a real real treat to watch that flourish. I'm sure that we could talk about animals and your book for the rest of the day, um, but we definitely don't want to give away the ending, so we're gonna pause here to not give any spoilers and just encourage everyone to go and pick up a copy of Hollow Kingdom. But we always like to ask our guests on the podcast, what books by women authors? do you like to recommend to other people or have you been reading recently? Ooh, I love that. I love that. Um, I think, you know, I can attribute, you know, having this book published to being inspired by women authors. I love, oh goodness, I love, let's see, Mary Oliver, the poet, the late Mary Oliver. I keep her poems by my bed. Um, and read them at night, which is something I, it's a tip I stole from Barbara Kingsolver, who's another writer I admire so greatly. Um, but I, I heard her talk about the fact that she keeps poetry by her bedside and um, reads it at the at nighttime, which I just think is so, so wonderful. I, I'm annoyed I didn't think of it first. I love Oyen Kong Breathway. I just was very lucky to get to be in conversation with her here in Seattle, and she's brilliant. And I love her book, My Sister, the Serial Killer. So she sort of recently is someone I come to absolutely adore. I read a lot of funny writers like Sloane Crosley, and um, I love Tina Fey and, um, you know, Amy Poehler and Mindy Kaling. I love funny books, so I always go to them for humor, but also read goodness, recent favorites, Circe by Madeline Miller. Oh my goodness, Madeline Miller's the best. There are so many. There's a, you know, there's a book that I think inspired me that I read a a long time ago, and it's called Dogs and Men uh, by Mary Ansel, who was the uh, wife of J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. And it is, uh, it was written in like, I think 1924. And I think, I think it's out of print. I think it's very hard to get a copy. When I last looked it up, it had one rating, I think on Amazon. And that was for me, (laughs) but it's a wonderful book because it's the story of the dogs that she, she starts out talking about how she was never a dog lover. And then sort of ultimately because of living with, and it's all large breed dogs first, I think it's a a Newfoundland, the one that inspired Nana in um, Peter Pan. And so it's a very beautiful, enchanting book that's very evocative of, I, I think, its time, the 20s. It's, it was pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, goodness, I'm inspired by so many writers. I've also been so lucky. I think, you know, when I lived in L.A., it was difficult to, I think because of the way the acting industry is, it was tricky to connect with other women. And since I've moved to Seattle, the the writing community is very different. And there's so many brilliant, you know, local authors that have been so supportive. Goodness, Laurie Frankel, and who's brilliant, and also Jenny Shortridge and Elizabeth George. And I've been so lucky as to sort of be 
um, in some ways, supported and, and mentored by these brilliant authors. Before we let you go, we wanted to ask you if there was anything you're working on now that you would uh, like to share with our listeners. Oh, goodness. I've been doing little humor pieces here and there, which I always do on the side as a kind of I, I just love to do it. So I write shorter pieces. So I've sort of been working on that. And I am working on another book, but I am, I, I am, it's all very top secret. <laughs> I'm not allowed to discuss it, which is, which feels very important and, <laughs> and special. Uh, but I am working on something else. And um, yeah, I'm about to uh, head out to California on tour tomorrow. So that, that's my next exciting adventure. We will definitely link to your tour so that way our listeners can stop by and see you in person and hear more about the book. But thank you so much, Kira, for coming and talking to us about Hollow Kingdom. We loved reading it and loved getting to talk to you about it. Oh my goodness, this was such a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I had a blast. We'd like to thank Kira Jane Buxton for talking to us about her debut novel, Hollow Kingdom, which is out now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find Kira on her website, kirajanebuxton.com, and on Instagram at kirajanewrites. And of course, all of her information will be linked in our show notes. We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.